Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How we doing? Good. It is so good to be here. So good to be gathered with God's body. Uh, grateful to be able to gather in this space. Our second week in this space. Gabe said it best. Let's be careful. Amen. We can thank God for that. Got to be careful not to look too quickly, not to lift up any curtains. You may see something that you don't want to see. Um, but no, we are, we are grateful. Thank you for your patience as well. We, we are still um, trying to get this space uh, prepared and ready. This was a old Curves building, uh, Curves as in the workout. Uh, so it, it literally was a workout space. To, so to convert it into a worship space does take some time. So we had to build walls and knock out some things. And so uh, thank you for your patience. Even in the kids' room, we're trying to get that together. So uh, again, thank you. Thank you, guys. But this is, is this not much more space than what we had? If, the, if you've been with us in the, in the lounge above the bar, we literally were sitting on top of each other. Um, nothing says community like sharing a seat with somebody right next to you. Um, but I, we, we are grateful for what the Lord has provided. I don't want to sound uh, ungrateful. We are grateful for what the Lord has provided and even grateful that we are here. I said it last week, but I want to make sure I continue to push it before you uh, that this, this building isn't the space. I mean, this isn't the goal. This space isn't the goal. The goal is to see the mission and the work of Jesus Christ be performed in this neighborhood. And we'll use this space for that, for that very purpose. And so... Uh, grateful for that. A couple of things I, I want to make sure we continue to push before you, uh, really some community aspects, uh, because so far we've just been doing Sunday morning, and uh, that, that is, that's good, but that's just a picture, a small window into what the church is. Uh, but I want to push before you that we are um, excited about and hoping that you guys would be excited as well about our community, our small groups. Uh, our small groups are starting in October, and that is a I mean, that is the bloodline of our community. The bloodline of our church is you guys connecting in small clusters all around Brooklyn. And prayerfully, we can continue to expand. But that is the goal to see us all connected Monday through Saturday. That's where the church really happens. Sunday, we just get together and we just worship Jesus corporately as a body. But Monday through Saturday, when someone has a, 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 they fall into a rough time or there's illness within your small group, that small group should be able to get around that person. And that's what community is. And so I'm, I'm praying for urging you guys to really sign up for those small groups. And as you are walking out, if hospitality is there, um, we, we would love for you to sign up today. We do have zip codes so you can find out exactly what's closest to you um, and, um, I think it would be a good thing. The other thing, which is, again, a community builder, is our DNA groups. We've already started our DNA groups, discipleship, nurture, accountability. If you have questions about that, see anybody that has the how can I serve you sign on. You can see hospitality as well. I don't know if we have any more of those DNA cards, but if we have those DNA cards, we'd love to give those out to you just to give you some information on what, uh, what DNA is. DNA is two or three people, so small group maybe eight to ten. But DNA is two or three, and there are some things that you can tell somebody and go deeper in relationship with if it's just one person or two people that you'd probably be hesitant to tell in a group of 10 to 12, which is also mixed gender. So DNA is just women on women, or women and women, three women or two or three women or two or three men. Small groups is mixed gender. So uh, I am hoping that no one in here, and I'm going to be asking people, you know, and I still I have already been. I've been encouraged hearing some of you say, man, I had DNA yesterday. I had coffee with my DNA person. I heard Timmy say, I got with my DNA person. We're going through Proverbs. That is what it's going to take. You need accountability. 
I know we push away from accountability. You need accountability. It's important for your spiritual growth. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. And so isolation is not something that we want to see happen. We want to see you engaged. Nobody should be unengaged. And so, um, yeah, want to see you guys, community groups, small groups, and our, our DNAs. Um, those are things that we, we really want to see you guys in. Uh, listen, school has officially started. I don't know if you're a teacher. Maybe you are. Maybe your kids have went back to school. Maybe you're a social worker. Anybody in here work in, in the school system? Anybody? Got a few hands. I mean, can we thank God for, for everybody that works in the school system? They have a tremendous, tremendous job ahead of them as the school year just kicked off. Um, and I think sometimes we don't give them enough credit that they are uh, engaging our kids on a consistent basis, really more, than they're, more time than they're at home and we're engaging them. They're at school and the school is engaging them. So we should be praying for, and I want you guys to be praying for all of our teachers and uh, our social workers. I pray for our kids that have just went back to school. Um, and also pray for the partnerships we have with Young Life, which engages teens. It's about 12, so roughly about 12,000 uh, teenagers in Bed-Stuy alone. And so uh, be praying for them in our partnership with Excellence Boys School. Be praying for that partnership that the Lord would just continue to strengthen it as we start to move towards a mentorship program with them, uh, trying to figure out and work out the kinks. And we'll need some of you guys to be involved in that. Some of you men, because it is a boys school. So some of you men, we, we'll need you involved in that. Last thing I just want to mention really quickly is uh, it is 9-11 and, um, you know, such a, a tragic time. Can you believe it's been 15 years? Like, I remember what I had on. I remember where I was. I remember uh, the smell of the room. I remember looking at the TV in just disbelief. Um, and so, you know, 15 years separated from it. So, I mean, some kids, my kids don't even know. They weren't even born yet. Um, and so we, let's be praying for, praying for the victim, fam, the family's victims. They're probably still mourning. Um, and be praying for our, our city, our, our community, as it relates to terrorist attacks. All right, Jonah, chapter one, if you guys can open up. I am eager to preach the word of God. Very eager. Jonah, chapter one. As you turn there, I thought this was a, a cool little thing that we did. We, we're about to go through a series. When I say on Jonah, I mean verse by verse, line by line. Uh, there'll be uh, no part of Jonah that's left unturned prayerfully. Uh, so we're going to go through all four chapters of Jonah. But the beautiful thing is, if you've dropped your kids off into the, the, the kids space, our children's ministry area, they're going to be going through Jonah as well for the next several weeks. And so this may, if you have kids, this may be a good opportunity for you to engage them during the week. Maybe you, you can incorporate Jonah as part of your devotional time with your family if you do that, and prayerfully you do. Part of your devotional time with your family, maybe you can walk through Jonah. But if nothing else, ask them questions. Have them ask you questions. Uh, and, I, and I pray that uh, the Lord would use this book. It's such a profound book. Uh, and I pray that the Lord would use it in, uh, to strengthen your family as well as our church. All right. I'll read, we're going to do the, the whole chapter, all 17 verses today. Uh, and so if you could bear with me uh, and be patient, we'll, we'll get through it. All right, Jonah chapter one. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going 
to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea and lightened it up for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Now the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do with you? This, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not, his, lay not on us his innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it is pleasing to you. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the, men, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made a vow. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I wanna preach from the topic entitled Divine Pursuit. Divine Pursuit, let us pray. This morning, Lord, we come to you uh, in need of you in need of your spirits working to, uh, to proclaim this word, to hear this word. I pray that you would help me to be faithful to your text. The truth is, Father, we, this is why we gather. Uh, we thank you for the worship. Uh, we thank you for the hospitality. Uh, we thank you for the announcements. And uh, we thank you for being able to enjoy and see one another. But the truth of the matter is we come to get around this word. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, the word of God is alive and it's active. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And so this morning, I pray that you would cut us deep, Lord. Not only cut us deep, but your word has the ability to cut us and sew us back up at the same time. And so, Father, I pray that the word would rest on us. As we read about the life of Jonah, would the words of Jonah's dysfunction, disobedience, his sin, jump off the pages, land on our life so that we can know how to wrestle well with our own dysfunction, our own disobedience? And our own sin. And at the end of the day, help us to look at the end of the four chapters, help us to look and see the beautiful character of our God. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Be with us now. May Christ be glorified. May he be preached and proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. 
divine pursuit. There's a couple of things that I, I really need to take off of the table if we're going to do the book of Jonah any justice. There's just really two things that I have to say, man. We, this, this, is, this, is a, a, um, this is a myth, if you will. The, the first one that I really need to take off the, the table is that the book of Jonah is not some fictitious book that we tell our kids to keep them quiet. This is not some fictitious book, some telltale that we tell the kids in children's church so that they grow up and think this was just a wonderful story. This is a literal account of something that actually happened to Jonah, but also to the Ninevites. This is an actual account. This is a real, this is a real story. Now, some will say, well, that's impossible for this to be a real story. Like I've checked the size, di- the, uh, uh, the size dimension of an esophagus of a whale, and that's probably the biggest fish we have. I've checked it, and it cannot swallow a man. So some people will say it's impossible. But I will argue, like, think of this. The Lord can cause an embryo to grow in the womb of a woman. Do you, are you telling me he can't tell a fish to swallow a prophet and not digest them? Absolutely he can. Why can't he? Because Genesis 1 says, that the Lord created the heavens and the earth. If he created it, he can control it. And so this is an absolute true story. Some will say that Jonah actually wasn't swallowed by a great fish. They'll say that he was thrown into the sea and then the the storm ceased from its raging. And then he saw another boat. I actually read this. He saw another boat called the great fish. And so he jumps onto another boat. The only problem I have with that myth is, is if you go to chapter two, verse number 10, it says that the great fish vomited him up. Now, I've never seen a boat vomit a person up. So this has to be a literal account. Let let me go a step further here. Jesus mentions this story in Matthew chapter 12. And when he mentions the story, he compares his own death, burial and resurrection to Jonah's story. Let me tell you what he says. He says, for just as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is called typology. That means Jesus went back in the Old Testament, found himself, and says, that story points to me. Jesus would not have mentioned this story as a comparison to his death, burial, and his resurrection if it were not true. If Jesus mentions it, we can bank on it. We can bank on this story. And so this isn't some false, cute story that we tell our kids. No, this is a real account. This actually happened. And so just because we can't find a well that has the, 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 the size of a stomach that can fit a person doesn't mean that God didn't say, I'm going to create a specific fish for this specific purpose. So this is a real account. I had to take that off the table. Second thing that I really want to take off the, t- the table is the book of Jonah is now, we reduce the book of Jonah to simply be about a, a story of a fish and a disobedient prophet. The story is much more than just a fish. It's much more than just a fish. And my, my hope and prayer is that you will, you, you'll walk through this with us and really see two things. First of all, see the disgusting disobedience of our own sin But really, this book, if you want to sum this book up with one sentence, it's it shows us the character of our God and how he deals with your sin. That's what the book will Jonah will show us. And so my my hope and prayer is that you'll walk through this with us. Let me give you a quick fact about Jonah. Jonah is the only prophet, the only prophet that ever disobeyed God. No prophet ever disobeyed God. Ezekiel didn't do it. Jeremiah didn't do it. Elisha didn't do it. Elisha didn't do it. 
Isaiah didn't do it. Every single prophet obeyed God except for our boy Jonah. And instead of God, I'm amazed that God didn't wipe him out and just pick a new prophet. Like That's what I would have did. If I'm God, you disobey. My, my mother used to, she used to get the belt on me and I used to run. She'd be like, I ain't running after you. Like, can you imagine, like, God says, I'm going to put on my Nikes and I'm going to run after this disobedient prophet. He could have wiped him out, got a whole new prophet. And so Jonah is the only one that is disobedient. But instead of God wiping him out, he decides to interrupt his life through a series of events just to get him back on track, just to get him. Do you see the grace already? Just to get him on track with his own will. He decides to interrupt his life. And it's imperative. If you're going to understand the book of Jonah, you have to understand the interruptions of God in your own life. The the will of God is normally shown through how he interrupts our lives. Like Jonah is going to get realigned with the will of God because God sends a storm. Then he sends a fish. And he does that to get his attention. Like the most... The the most ungracious thing the Lord could have did was let him get on that boat and get to Tarshish and go ahead and die in Tarshish. Die in your disobedient and sins. The worst thing he could have did, the greatest thing he did was send the storm. The greatest thing he did was send the fish. And so it's important for you to understand interruptions. Interruptions are a part of how God realigns us with his will. When I used to play football back in... um, and when I was living in Jersey, we used to play recreational football in the backyard, and a bunch of us would get together, and you know, I didn't want to get my jeans dirty, so I would turn them inside out so my mother wouldn't see the grass stains. And we used to get in the back, and when the other team would be beating us, what would we do? In order to redirect the game, we'd call timeout. A timeout would allow us to get ourselves together, collect ourselves, say, man, let's this guy is killing us. Let's double up on him just to, just to try to figure out how to redirect the game. That is what our God does to our boy Jonah. He calls a timeout in order to redirect his life. And through redirecting his life, he puts him back on to his will. So let's consider the story together and see what the Lord will say to us. Verse number one, because the, 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 the book of Jonah starts out with an interruption. Look at what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. There's two words that I think you should know, that I think you should circle, if you mark it all in your Bible, if you're writing notes. There's two words that I want to point out that I think you should, you should consider. Nineveh and evil. It's in verse number two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. If you're going to understand the character of God, if we're going to understand why Jonah ran the opposite way, we're going to have to understand who Nineveh is. Nineveh was an extremely wicked city. Like, you think Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked city. No, Nineveh was 10 times worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, the book of Nahum, like, this is how you know that Nineveh was a wicked city. There's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to talking about how wicked Nineveh was. Read the book of Nahum. It's three, I know you've like, Nahum, where's that at? 
read the book of Nahum. It's three chapters long. The first chapter talks about the wrath of God against Nineveh. The second chapter talks about the destruction of Nineveh. And the third chapter talks about the curse that he calls upon Nineveh. Three chapters all dedicated to talking about how wicked Nineveh is. Nineveh would literally, they would overtake a city and bring back body parts as souvenirs. They would go to their enemy, overtake them, rip the flesh off their skin, listen to this, and put it as the tent walls. So they would stretch skin out and that would be the walls of their tent. Their enemies would be their walls. They would, the, the king of Nineveh would take, after he's conquered a kingdom, he'd take the king, cut off his head, and when he had celebration, he'd bring out the heads of conquered kings as entertainment. This is how wicked Nineveh was. Why am I telling you how wicked Nineveh is? Because what it shows us is the grace of our God that he would send the prophet of Israel to go to a wicked city. Now that should make all of us in this room rest in, 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 the, in the work of Christ. Why? Because most of us in this room, yet you don't have on your wall right now this skin of your haters or your enemy, right? Like, we don't have that, but most of us have wickedness in our hearts. Our actions are tainted and infected with sin. And so when we think about the grace and mercy of God, it's easy for us to say, I'm too far. I'm too far for the Lord to actually care about me. But he's willing to send the prophet of Israel to go to Nineveh. And you'll see when we get to chapter three, to preach eight words. He'll send the prophet to do that. So this shows us, the, the, the reason we have to talk about Nineveh's wickedness is because it helps us to understand our own wickedness and how God relates to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. It's the beauty I love about grace. And that's not a license to sin. Like when you meet Jesus, like you don't have that in you like, man, I'm just going to go sin. Like your desires change. And so this isn't a license to sin, but if you do sin, 1 John 2, 1 says you have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. The remedy for your sin is God's grace. That's the remedy for your sin. So there's something else I want to point out. God isn't only about interrupting Nineveh's life here. He is also about interrupting the life of Jonah. Nothing in the text suggests to me that Jonah had any preconceived notion that the Lord was going to call him for this mission. In fact, look at verse number one. It's out of the blue. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittite. There was nothing. This wasn't on his calendar three months in advance. Like this wasn't on his iCalendar app. He didn't get a push notification saying, hey, in two months you got to go to Nineveh. This was out of the blue. And that's normally how the Lord interrupts our life. It's normally like completely out of the blue. You have no clue that he's going to call you. He doesn't give you advance notice. He doesn't give you an itinerary to where you're going. He says, I want you to do this. Go now. That's normally how the Lord calls us. And, you know, if you know your Bible at all, if you know anything about your Bible, you'll know that any time the Lord calls any man in the scriptures, it's always an interruption that's out of the blue. He never, he, never just, he never gives them any type of warning that it's, hap- it's going to happen. He says, no, I need you now. Look at Genesis chapter 12 with Abram, later to be named Abraham. Look how he calls him. I mean, he's sitting there minding his own business in chapter 12 of Genesis, and the Lord says, go to a land in which I'm going to show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. Doesn't give him a, pre- a pre-flight itinerary. Just says, I need you to go. 
Pack your bags and go. And that's how he calls us. Look at Exodus chapter 3 with Moses. Moses is tending sheep in Midian for his father-in-law Jethro in Exodus 3. And the Lord decides to call him to go to the, the most powerful prophet, I mean the most powerful man in Egypt and tell him to let my people go. And here's the crazy thing about Moses. Moses was 80 years old when the Lord called him. 80 years old, out of the blue, interrupts his life. Does the same thing with our boy Paul. First was named Saul, later to be named Paul. In Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute Christians. And what does God do? Knocks him off the horse and says, listen, I know you're on your way to persecute Christians, but now I need you to go preach the gospel to them and plant churches. Out of the blue, had no clue, had no clue that the Lord was going to interrupt him. And our boy Jonah does the same thing. Can I give you 30 seconds of my own personal testimony? I was working at Verizon Wireless, honestly moving up the corporate ladder, was minding my own business, on my way, was about to relocate my family and I down to Alpharetta, Georgia, was planning on just attending a church there. I, I was going to grow old there, watch my kids get old, watch them get married, have some grandkids, and, and, excuse me, <clears throat> and die happily in Alpharetta, Georgia. And what does he do? He interrupts my life and says, no, I need you to leave the comfy security of Verizon Wireless and go raise your own support to plant a church in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Now, I'm not saying I'm the savior of anything. What I am saying is God interrupted my life, and I had no clue he was going to do it. And if you're going to understand the interruptions of God, you have to, within the interruptions of God, you will always find your purpose, your the assignment that God has on your life. Don't sit here and complain about God's interruption. He doesn't do it to get on your nerves. He does it to accomplish his glorious will. And so you have to understand the interruptions of God. Let's keep going. Verse number three. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. Most of you know the story here. After God calls him, look at what he does. But Jonah rose to a flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. God gave Jonah a clear direction to go east to Nineveh, which really is modern-day Iraq. He goes west to the seaport of Joppa to go to Tarshish, which really is modern-day Spain. 2,500 miles apart from each other, he's running as far as he can to get out of what the Lord has called him to do. And I don't want to jump ahead in the book because the book will explain why. By the time we get the fourth chapter, we'll understand the wickedness of Jonah's heart of why he actually wanted to run. But 2,500 miles away, he responds by becoming the first fugitive from his divine mission. What the Lord has called him to do, he runs as far as he can. And it's important for us to understand, in Jonah choosing to run the opposite way, what we see is the very essence of what sin is. Sin is, I know what you have for me, I know what you want me to do, but I'm not going to do that, I'm going to do my own thing. Right? What do we say? Do you, boo. That, this is what Jonah is doing. Jonah's doing him. He says, I know what you called me to do, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going not just close, not just close to Nineveh. I'm going the opposite way as far as I can so far that I got to jump onto a boat. And there's three things that we can learn about our own sin within verses three and four. Three things that I quickly want to pull out before we keep going through the rest of the text. Three things we got to pull out. Number one, 
Sin is always planned. It's intentional. Look at what verse number three says. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went, look at the intention he has. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He didn't fall on the ship going to Tarshish. He intentionally planned this out. And that's normally how sin is. You don't fall into sin. You intentionally think about what I'm going to do. Yesterday, my, or two days ago, my wife and I had to run some errands in the city. And so we're in the city and we're having this, this conversation. So we just literally weren't paying attention as we were in the subway. And two times we got on the wrong train going the wrong way. Two times. And we're like, man, good thing we had nothing to do that day. Because if we did, we would have just been in trouble. Get on the wrong train two times going the wrong way. That's not how sin is. That was an accident. Sin is planned out. Let me tell you what sin is. Sin is you get the text message. I put it in my Hopstop app. I put that address in. I get on the train. I go to her house. I end up waking up next to her in the bed smoking a cigarette. That's sin. Was that too much? Why in, the, why in the world back in the day, you know, when people would get it and they'd be smoking cigarettes in the bed? What is that? I never understood what that was. That's sin. Sin is intentional. Sin is calculated. Sin plans it out. Sin doesn't just come up on you. We treat sin like we're walking down the street and we trip over a rock and we just fall. Into, no, it don't work like that. Sin is planned out. You think this thing through. You look at the text message. You look at that Instagram one second too long. Look at that picture one second too long and your wheels start turning. That's how sin is. And so sin is intentional. Think about this. Jonah goes down to Joppa, finds a boat that's going to Tarshish, pays a fare to get on the boat to go to Tarshish. It's planned out. Second thing I want to point out. So the first thing is it's planned out. It's intentional. It's calculated. Second thing I want to point out that's in the text is for lack of a better, and I tried to get a better word here. I couldn't. For lack of a better word, sin is stupid. Let me show you why it's stupid. There's two phrases that I want to point out to you in verse number three. But Jonah rose to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found, a, found, actually, let me go back to verse number two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The evil that has come up before me. But Jonah rose, went to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, going down from the presence of the Lord. It says it again in verse number four, but the Lord hurled a great wind on the storm. Storm is not in verse number four. It says, presence of the Lord, uh, uh, oh, verse number three, it says, but Jonah rose, flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. At the end of verse number four, it says, presence of the Lord again. Jonah actually thinks that he's running from the presence of the Lord. Like, how stupid is, like, this is the prophet of Israel, somebody that has communicated with the Lord before. Not to mention, later on in the chapter, he says, when he's talking to the mariners, he says, that the God I serve and the God I fear is the God of the sea and the land. That's all they would have known was sea and land. And so he's saying, I'm running from the presence of the Lord, really when he knows that the God he serves is the God of the sea and of the land. Sin is stupid. Sin does, it just, it's temporary insanity. Sin doesn't make sense. When you think, like, think about your own sin. When you look back, you're like, ugh. I can't believe I got caught up in that. That's what it is. Sin is stupid. He's running. The prophet of Israel is trying to run from the presence of the Lord, which you cannot do. Let me give some Bible with that. Psalm 139, verse 7. 
7 through 10. Where, where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I, if I ascend into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, even there, you are there. If I take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts, listen, in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand is with me. And so you cannot run from the presence of the Lord. How do you run from an omnipresent God? Omnipresent God is just a big term for God is everywhere. He's in Uganda right now. He's in Texas right now. And he's right here right now. God is everywhere. How do you run from a God? Not only that's just everywhere, but a God that knows everything. He knows everything. Do you know the scripture tells us in Luke chapter 12, verse number seven, that even the hairs on your head are numbered? That that doesn't mean that he knows the number of hairs on your head. That means when one grows or one falls out, he knows. So that morning when you, this morning when you were combing your hair or you were brushing your hair, when that one hair got caught into the, into the comb, he said, oh, there goes hair number 95,654. By the way, that, that's the average number. I, I look that up. That's the average number of hairs on a human's head. He knows the numbers of hair on your head when one falls out. So how do you run from a God that's omnipresent, run from a God, from, a, from the presence of a God that knows everything? Here it is. You can't do it. It's like a five-year-old trying to play hide-and-go-seek in a studio apartment that's 500 square feet. You can't do it. You cannot hide from a God that's all-knowing. So sin is planned out. It's intentional. Second thing is sin is stupid. Doesn't make sense. Third thing I want to point out to you about Jonah's sin And this is probably the most important. Sin will cost you something. Look at what the scripture says in verse number three. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. Look at this. If you you write in your Bible, underline this phrase. So he paid the fare. He actually paid to get on the boat. He did not get on this boat for free. In fact, if you look up the actual meaning behind paid the fare, it means he commandeered the whole ship. He paid for everybody. He rented the entire boat. So he, this wasn't like a little bit of money that he was putting up. No, he put up a hefty, a hefty sum of money to pay for his own sin, to pay for his own disobedience. And sin, listen to me, if you're caught in a lifestyle of sin right now, You may not feel the consequences now, but it will catch up with you at some point. Sin will cost you something. You cannot sin. Now, let's be honest. If you've trusted in Jesus, if you've you've put your, your faith in the person and the work of Jesus, yes, your sins is forgiven. When God sees you, he sees the blood of Christ. But let me tell you something about your sin. It still has a consequence to it. Don't think that you can just continue to sin and it not catch up with you. It absolutely does. Adam's sin cost him paradise. David's sin cost him his family. I'll go a step further. Samson's sin cost him his life. What is your sin costing you? Sin cost us all something. And my hope and prayer is that we would look at Christ and see what our sin has cost our Savior. Look at what your sin, like the, the most famous picture of Jesus is him on the cross. That's what your sin cost Christ. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, it cost us something. You cannot sin and nothing happened. But yes, you will have consequence for sin. Let's keep moving. I'm going to read a big chunk here. Try to get through this a little bit. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind, verse number four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up and the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea and lightened it for him. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps God will give us a thought that we may not perish. Verse number seven. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know who on whose account this evil has come up on us, upon us. So they cast lot in the, the lots and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come up. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Listen, he's about to explain the character of God. He's not even just telling them. You don't have to look up yet because we won't get back into it. He's not even just telling them what he's did. He's telling them about God, which is important once we get to the end of this chapter. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I know when he said who made the sea and the dry land. I know the mariners were like, well, you picked the sea to run from God and you just said he made it. That is a great way for you to, a great place for you to hide out from a God who made the sea. Verse 10, then they were exceedingly afraid. They said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to them, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down? The sea grew even more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up, which is crazy. He's about to tell them, pick me up, throw me into the sea when that's a good place for him to repent. Like he's so against Nineveh being saved that he'd rather die than actually repent of his own disobedience and sin. Pick me up is what he says. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. This is the point I wanted to get to right here. Look at the rest of this verse. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, I said the, the sin will bring a consequence to our own life, but here's the truth of the matter. Sin also impacts those around you. Amen. Notice something in the text. Jonah is the one that's disobeying God, but Jonah's not the only one in the storm. Everybody in the boat is in the storm. And Jonah just said, and I'm paraphrasing, Jonah just said, you're in this mess because of me. Like, think about your own sin. Sometimes we think that we sin in a vacuum. Like, we think that our sin only impacts us if we think it impacts us. If it does impact us, it only impacts us and it has no consequence on anybody else. It doesn't have any effect on anybody else. But the truth of the matter is, do you know how many families are destroyed because of a father's sin? Do you know how many marriages are destroyed because of a wife's sin? Let me flip this a little bit. Do you know how many parents are up at night because of their child's sin? And if you're a young man, a young woman in here, and you're caught in a lifestyle of sin, understand something about your sin. It doesn't only impact you, but it impacts your parents. It impacts your family. Remember when we went through uh, Psalm 51 and we were talking about David and we were talking about the pebble in the shoe and we were talking about David's own sin. David's sin didn't just impact him. David's sin also impacted Bathsheba because now she's a widow. It impacted Uriah, her husband, because now he's dead. And it impacted his own son. The Lord took his son. Your sin has the ability to not just impact you. We are so selfish when it comes to our sin. But your sin has a ripple effect and it impacts others. So it's important to understand something. 
Jonah ain't the only one in this storm, but the other, the, everybody else that's in this storm is all being impacted because of this great disobedience from Jonah. Other thing I want to point out about this storm, because it's easy for us to read the storm and just run right over it. Verse number four, read the first couple of words with me. In fact, read the whole uh, verse number four with me. Read it together. But the Lord hurled, let's start over. Verse number four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Who hurled the storm? The Lord. The Lord didn't allow the storm. He didn't approve of the storm. He created the storm. Like, understand that because it's easy for us to, this is what we do when we're in a hard time. We automatically blame the devil. But the truth is, the Lord, not approved, not allowed, but created the storm. So let me put this before you. You may be in a storm right now that the Lord actually has you in. So I know you're like, well, pastor, do you want me to actually feel like there's grace in this storm? Absolutely. Why? Because the text just told me that God hurled the storm. Not only that, verse 17 says he appointed the fish. So God has these little moments in our lives to disrupt us that he creates. He doesn't just allow. Right? In Job's situation, he allowed that. But in Jonah's situation, he created the storm. And like I said in the beginning, the most gracious thing he could have did. Because if he let him get to Tarshish, go ahead and get on the boat, go ahead and get to Tarshish. If he let him do that and die in his disobedience and his rebellion against God, that's not grace. But grace says, I'm going to snatch you up and I'm going to throw a storm and I'm going to create a fish. Like the most unloving thing I could do is watch my boys play in the, in the middle of Fulton Street play football in the middle of Fulton Street and be like, oh, they're all right. It's the most unloving thing I can do. You know what the gracious thing I could do? Snatch their butt up and be like, what are you doing in the street? You want to get hit by a car? That's grace. That's love. And so what God does, and this is scripture, right? What does the Bible tell us? Those whom he loves, he does what? He chastens. Yeah, he gives, you a, he gives us a spanking. And we need it because that is what gets us back online with God's will for our life. That was Hebrews chapter 12, verse six. The Lord disciplines those who he loves. And that's what the Lord does. And so it'll be unloving for me not to snatch him up. It'll be unloving for the Lord not to snatch Jonah up. He created the storm. And in your life, he may have you in a storm that's not the devil that he created. My hope and prayer is that you would see the grace and the mercy of our God in that storm. My hope and prayer is that while you're sitting in the belly of the fish, that you would see that God appointed it. And ask God, the, the Pastor Boyd that preached last week said it at the end of his sermon. When, when a hard time walks into the room, say, welcome my slave. Create for me the glory that God has for me. Create it in me. Create that hard time. Create that thing in me. Let's keep going. I'm running out of time. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode harder. This is, this is interesting. So Jonah says, throw me overboard because the, the, the storm that we're in is because of me. Jonah says, throw me overboard. These men, are tra- they're gracious because I would have threw them overboard right away. Like I wouldn't, he wouldn't even finish the sentence and he would have been in the water. But these men don't only let him finish the sentence. Look at what they do. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. 
to get back to dry land. So they still tried to, they tried to get him to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Verse 14, therefore, they called out to the Lord. Oh Lord, now they're about, now this is crazy. They woke everybody up and said, pray to your gods. Now they're praying to Jonah's God. They say, oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life let, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, oh Lord, have done what is pleasing to you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made a vow. Like, did you hear that? This is the prophet of Israel that is being disobedient, caught in sin, and the Lord still used him to save men on this boat. Like, think about that. Like, this is, that, that's why when we read around verses 9 through 11, when they said, tell us who you are, tell us what country you come from, tell us what family you come from, the scripture does tell us that he did tell them that he was running from the Lord. Scripture says that. But it also shows us that he told them enough about the character of God that they're now repenting. Between his testimony about the character of God and the Lord stopping the sea, stopping the storm on the sea was enough for these men to say, let's make a vow. Let's give our life to this this God that created the land in the sea. This shows us something very important about our God, that the Lord will use you in spite of you, or he'll use you in a so he'll use you in a positive way, or he'll use you in a negative way. If he wants his will out of your life, it's gonna be done. He doesn't need you to be obedient to get his will done. This prophet is disobedient, paid a fare to go the wrong way, and the Lord still used him to save the ship. Like that's what I love about our God, that he's able to use dead weight to accomplish his will. That gives me joy. Because I look at my life and I'm like, Lord, I don't know how in the world anybody would sit and listen to me open up the word. I am dysfunctional. I am a sinner by nature. But when I read texts like this, it makes me rejoice. Lord, you can use anything. He uses the foolish to confound the wise. You may be the fool that he's using to confound somebody else. Jonah was the fool that he used to confound these mariners, these men. Note something, something else important about God's character. God sent the storm. God sent the fish. Now, understand something crazy. Jonah here, in my mind, again, I would think that he would have wiped Jonah out. Wiped Jonah out, got another. There was other prophets. Nahum probably lived around the same time. So there were other, some people say that. So there are other prophets that were there that he could have used. But God wasn't only concerned about the mission of seeing Nineveh saved he was concerned about the missionary. See, that's important to understand because there are times in our life, and I'm wrapping up here, there's times in our life where we think that God cares more about the stuff we do than he actually cares about us. But what the text shows us today is that God doesn't just use people to fix stuff. He uses stuff to fix people. Like he's after Jonah right now. He's after Jonah because he knows that Jonah is disobedient. And instead of wiping it out, he says, now I'm going to interrupt his life. I'm going to give him a few more chances here to get it right. Chapter two, next week when we get into chapter two, we'll see that Jonah gets it right. He gets his mind together. Remember I said that all sin is temporary insanity. 
Jonah comes back to himself in chapter two when he's sitting in the well. The greatest interruption that God can make in any one of our lives is to interrupt us from a life of sin and interrupt us and introduce salvation to us. That's the good. Like, think about this. Jonah was thrown into the sea for his sin, but Jesus Christ is thrown into the sea by God the Father, thrown into the sea of sin for our sin. Jesus compares himself to Jonah. And at the end of him comparing himself, he says something greater than Jonah is here, talking about himself. So I don't know who you are in here. I don't know where you are in the scope of things. I don't know if you're in that season of running from the Lord. My guess is, my, my guess is that many of you are. You come here every week, you have your church face on, right? You come here and you help, you paint the walls and you, you dust stuff. But my guess is that deep inside, if someone was to press you, if your accountability partner, your DNA partner was to press you, my guess is that many of us in this room are running from the Lord. We didn't make it to Tarshish yet, but we, we sure are paying that fare to get on that boat. And my fear is that the Lord would allow you to get to Tarshish. The greatest thing he could do is send the storm. And you may be in a storm in this room, or maybe you're in the belly of the fish right now. At the end of this chapter, chapter, seven, it, uh, chapter one, verse number 17, it shows us that he created this fish and he put him in the belly of this fish. And in doing so, this was God's grace. I don't know who you are, but if that's you, if you don't know Jesus, if you are running from the Lord, my prayer is that you would give your life to him. 2,000 years ago, he dies on a cross for your sin, your dysfunction, your disobedience. We're far more like Jonah than we think. In fact, because what we do is we read the text and we be like, man, I wouldn't be Jonah. I would have obeyed. Truth is, we would have all ran. All of us in this room would have ran our hearts, our wicked, Jeremiah 17. Who can understand the wickedness of our hearts? The beauty in the gospel is that Jesus Christ comes, dies for your sin, and because of his death for your sin, you are now accepted. If you trusted in Jesus, you're accepted because Jesus Christ took all of your sin. Not a little bit. He didn't pay half the phone bill to keep it on. He paid the whole bill. It's all done. Let us pray. Father, you told us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And so, Father, this morning, as we consider our own sin and we consider our own disobedience, my hope and prayer, Lord, is that you would through your text, expose it to us. Expose those areas of our life that we've shut you out because we don't want you to, it's almost like that room that we close all the doors when visitors come because we don't want them to see our junk, our filth, our mess. But Father, you interrupted Jonah's life to open those doors and to see that mess and not condemn him Father, you could, your wrath would have been, throw him into the sea, he drowned. Your wrath could have been, have him swallowed by a fish and digested. But your grace is that when he hit the water, the storm stopped. When he goes into the belly of this fish, it doesn't consume him. We get to see your grace. We get to see your character. Father, help us to fall deeply in love with Jesus Christ. 
The one who provides, the reason we can pray in this room is because we have access to your throne through Jesus Christ. And we are grateful for that. Father, let us not walk out of here and say, I know I'm disobedient, but I'm going to continue in this. But Father, help us to walk out of here and fall deeply in love with Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.